Well, good evening. We're going to continue speaking about the glory of God. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if we go from speaking about the glory of God to instantly experiencing the glory of God? Of course, we want to remember that admonition of uh, John, and now little children abide in him that you have no reason to shrink back in shame at his appearing. You know, as I say that, I'm, I'm drawn to remembrance of um, well, at the church where I met my wife, the pastor there, wonderful man of God. He's home to be with the Lord now. He was preaching from the pulpit. And as he was preaching, he said, Brothers, I, I don't feel that good. He told the deacons, ushered them out, and he sat down and went to the presence of the Lord. Right from preaching. What a glorious gift from God. Not everybody perhaps looked at that way, but here was a servant laboring for the Lord, and he went right into the glory of God. A friend over at the First Baptist, Glenn Gunderson, talked about the chancellor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, closed the year out, um, the, the, the dean closed the year out with a message about living as if at any moment you might go into the glory of God. And at the end of the benediction... He sealed it by falling over and going into the presence of the Lord. That's a glorious gift to somebody who is following after the Lord, even though we might look at it that way. Well, we, we spoke this morning, we opened by talking about Paul's message to Ephesus, to the Ephesians, and what his prayer was for them. He said that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you a spirit of wisdom and, and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then again, speaking about one of the purposes of the church was to reveal even this truth to the, to the people who exist in a plane other than ours, those powers in heavenly places. So we speak to both people here in the world and people who are peering down, and perhaps adjacent to us, from the spiritual realm, watching what we're doing with the glory of God. And again, in the third chapter of Ephesians, he's praying that they might be Strengthened that by the, the spirit in their inner man, that Christ may dwell richly in their hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. If we stop and think about that, to be filled up to all the fullness of God. We spoke how Moses asked God, he said, I want to know your ways so that I may know you, that I might be pleasing to you because you've asked me to lead your people. He asked to be shown the glory of God, knowing that if he saw the glory of God and understood who God was, he'd be equipped not only to be pleasing to God, but to be of use and bring more glory to God 
here with his, his assignment on earth. We spoke about worship. That's the appropriate response when we see the glory of God, that worship has three phases. One where we're speaking upward in praise, in voice, and in thought, in prayer. One where we're listening for instructions coming back, and then finally, in service. As I mentioned this morning, the words that are translated into worship in the Bible, half the times they're translated to serve. Service is a form of, uh, in obedience, of worship. And that if we're going to be obedient and worship the Lord God, we ought to show it in that we obey His commands. Jesus says, well, how do you say that you love me and yet you do not do the things I command you to do? That's a fair question. It's a fair question that we can't honestly answer unless we're being obedient and we say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I, I seek to serve you. Yet who amongst us can say, I'm always obedient? You know, Paul said that we're dead to sin and alive to God. The penalty of sin has been removed from us. The power of sin has been removed from us, but sometimes we don't like that. Like a dog returning to his vomit we're drawn back to things, each of us, to perhaps things within the world that draw us away from the Lord. We take our eyes off the glory of the Lord, and we look at these baubles, these things here, these temporal things in, in this time, which is going to burn up, as Peter says. They're worthless. You know, I mentioned you know, God has made the proclamation, the certainty that he will not share his glory with another and that no other glory than other than his will be on display. And yet in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, Father, the glory you gave me, I have given to them. We're supposed to share this glory that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. This gift that we've been given should compel us to demonstrate our love through obedience. This message was given to me because I need it. I'm the one who desperately needed this message. Now the Lord has provided an opportunity for me to share it with you, but I'm not preaching at you because I think you need this message. No, I look in the mirror and I see that I need it. Desperately need it. We talk about the glory of God. And it's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. As we read this morning, in the opening verses of Hebrews, we're told that Christ is the fullness of the radiance of the glory of God. It's the exact character of God. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, For the God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Every Sunday morning when we come together at the breaking of bread and we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be looking into his face, seeing the glory of God, and that should have an impact on our life, not just for that day to get our hearts ready to receive a message, but to go out of here on fire for the Lord. That's what the Lord intends. He didn't just give Moses a glimpse of the backside of his glory to thrill Moses. The intent was to prepare Moses 
so that he could serve the living God, bring glory to him, and be adequate to lead the Israelites. <laughs> you know, the Lord doesn't give us much of a sight of what's in front of us, typically, because he knows we'll be terrified. But he tells us in Isaiah 46, I know the end from the beginning. He knew what Moses was going to face. Therefore, he equipped this man who came to God and said, I want to know your ways that I might know you. And God met him and answered that prayer, showed him his glory, pronounced his name before him and showed him the backside of his glory. And Moses fell and worshiped. We spoke a little bit about what the glory of God does to those who we would consider to be um, saints before God. And yet all mankind is tinged, stained with sin. And even Ezekiel was knocked to his face. And Isaiah, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips, for I've seen the King of kings, the Lord of hosts. Well, where do we go with this? Now, um, we finished up this morning talking about some of the ways we come together and worship the Lord at the Lord's table, as we spoke about. We, we, we worship through obedience in service, preaching the gospel, uh, discipleship, as our brother spoke of last week, baptism, the head coverings, revealing the glory of God. The whole purpose is to show that our hearts desire to be in tune with God, however distant we are removed from understanding the fullness of His glory, our heart's desire is that we seek after that so that like Moses we can say, I want to know your ways that I might know you and be pleasing in your sight and be prepared to lead those whom you've set to follow me. And, and I don't care how new you are in the Lord, there is somebody following you. Perhaps somebody who's lost, they're looking, oh, this guy just became a Christian, I'm going to watch and see what he does. The little children. You know, James gives us the admonishment, not many of you should desire to be teachers. He's talking about the desire of the heart, you don't want about our pride, but we're all called to be teachers. That's the commandment of Matthew 28. None of us are immune. Well, let's talk about disobedient believers. I, I mentioned this morning that Hebrews 10.38 says, the glory of God sometimes even scares believers away. It displaced the priests out of the tabernacle. It displaced the priests out of the temple when Solomon dedicated it. The, the Lord gives orders and we can choose to obey them or disobey them. And there's consequences, of course. The Lord made a promise when the Israelites were coming up out of Egypt and the Amalekites attacked them. God said, I'm going to destroy them and remove even their mem the memory of them. And the time came quite a ways into the future. He sent Samuel uh, to Saul in, in, second, or in 1 Samuel 15. And he tells him, go out and strike the Amalekites. I want you to destroy them utterly. Kill the people, kill the flocks, kill the herds, destroy everything. So Saul went out and defeated the Amalekites, killed the people, destroyed all the ratty sheep, destroyed all the ratty cattle. 
And he brought all the good sheep and the good cattle back, and he kept Agag, the king, alive. He came back rejoicing, so much so that he built a monument to himself. The Lord sent Samuel out to rebuke him. Samuel runs into those who tell him, oh, he's back, but he's, he's made a monument. And, and then Saul meets up with him and says, I've done the work of the Lord. Oh, have you? Oh, yeah, I've done the work of the Lord. Well, what's this bleeding and the lowing of cattle I hear in my ears? Like we want to do, Saul makes an excuse. Oh, I, we brought those so we could sacrifice them to the Lord. And as Samuel begins to rebuke and make more excuses, as well as the people. Samuel says, just stop, just stop. Wait, listen to what the Lord says. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord so much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul disobeyed the Lord. Well, he partially obeyed. He might even say he mostly obeyed. But it wasn't enough to remain as king. Uh, I bring this up talking about um, believers in disobedience. And I, I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but I suspect we're going to see Saul in heaven. You know, much later, long after Samuel had gone uh, to the grave, the Lord had stopped talking to King Saul. He had indeed torn the kingdom away from him. And he was going to battle against the Philistines, and he was terrified. The Lord wasn't speaking to him. He got so desperate that he resorted to divination. He went to the witch at Endor, asked her to bring up Samuel. Who, and the witch, of course, was terrified when Samuel actually appeared. What did Samuel say? He rebuked him strongly and said, Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. If I understand Luke 16 correctly, I don't, I don't think the rich man was with Abraham and Lazarus. I said, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. Even if that's not the case that Saul isn't in heaven, we have a disobedience here. This morning we talked about the disobedience um, of the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. We talked about the desire of the Lord in Exodus 19 that all Israel be a kingdom of priests before him to the world. In Exodus 20, when they see the, the smoke and the fire and hear the, the voice of the Lord getting ever louder like a trumpet blast, and they said, we don't want any part of this. They were willing to follow the Lord, but they followed at a distance. And it cost him greatly because that followed him, as we talked about this morning, to Kadesh Barnea, where they refused to trust in the Lord and their disobedience. Not only cost them that they fell in the wilderness, but their children, their children's children, and their grandchildren suffered the, the, the collateral consequences of that by following them in the desert as well. Let's turn to... Uh, Numbers 14, and we'll talk a little bit about what happened at Kadesh Barnea. When God reveals his glory and the power of his might, 
we're held accountable. As Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. Numbers 13, of course, is the, the chapter where the Lord tells him, send out the spies. The spies go out, the 12 spies, one from each tribe, and they bring back a report of the land. Uh, and indeed, it's a, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, the fruit of the land is massive. They, the, a cluster of grapes is so big that they suspend it from a staff that's carried between the shoulders of two men. Today, that's the, the symbol of tourism for uh, uh, Israel. But they give a bad report. Ten of them do. Said all oh, the cities are fortified and strong, and there's giants, and we can't take it. We can't take it. Caleb and Joshua, of course, refute that and encourage the people. That the people are, um, they're bitterly upset. They have no faith in God. They grumble against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation wept that night. And they say, we, we, would that we would have died uh, in Egypt. Or in, why are we here in the desert? We're going to die here. And our children, they're going to be uh, killed. They're going to be fodder. They utterly disbelieved the Lord after he'd saved them by the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt. That they passed through the sea. They saw the glory of the Lord at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. They saw his hand and his provision and their feeding through the desert. When it came time to go into the promised land, they refused to have faith in God. When Moses and Aaron fell on their face, and then Joshua and Caleb tried to convince them, we can go in. The Lord is with us. Read what it says in verse 10 of, of uh, Numbers 14. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. All the congregation. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in front of the meeting, in front of the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And that stopped them in their tracks. They weren't following closely at the Lord. They were reminded when the glory of the Lord showed up, though. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me, and how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses then goes into damage control. His heart is one of compassion. And he begins to implore the Lord uh, not to destroy them, that it will look bad for the name of the Lord amongst the nations. And um, look at verse 17. But now I pray you, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. In verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Where did we hear that before? Moses is quoting the description given of the glory of God when it passed in front of him when he was in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 34. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. The scripture tells us God doesn't change his mind. What's he doing here? He's drawing out Moses. He's drawing out of Moses what he put into him 
in showing Moses his glory. And glory is shown by Moses when he quotes back the very nature of God and his compassion and his sense of loving kindness. And he begs the Lord to forgive them. He's showing the heart, the mind of Christ, what we know as Messiah from all the scripture we have. Verse 20, read this carefully. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. So for their terrible sin, the Lord has pardoned them. But the consequences, just like the sword of the Lord, the sword not departing from the house of David, there's the consequences. They're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. people repented. Unfortunately for them, the Lord did not repent, for he sworn they're not going to enter the land. And for all this, they still are disobedient. The Lord said, go into the land. They refused. And then he says, don't go in the land. Go wander, like the RSV saying, take another lap. He says, go into the desert. What do they do? Try to go into the land. And they're spanked again. The Canaanites and the Amalekites come out and knock the stuffing out of them. They're disobedient. They've seen the glory of the Lord. The Lord holds them accountable, just as he holds us accountable. How much glory have we seen? We gather around the table every Sunday morning and sing praises to our Lord and give him glory for what he's done. And we want to make sure that we carry that on, that we take it outside of the corporate body we gather together here in, and display that glory for the world to see on the outside, that they too might also come to a saving knowledge of God. You know, we, we could go to Ezekiel 10. Uh, we won't go there. We'll just talk about that here again in disobedience. What is Ezekiel witness? We, we, he witnesses the glory of God departing step by step from the temple to the door to the gate, to the mountain, and away. Because they've despised, that means they held up no regard the glory of the Lord and his commandments. They've turned away from him. You know, Jeremiah's repeated warnings go unheeded. Why? They had a foolish belief that God wasn't going to judge them. They had misplaced trust in their relationship to God by name rather than by belief. You know, as Paul says in Romans, you know, a Jew is not one who is one outwardly and is not outward circumcision, but circumcision of the heart. Is there a danger that we, and I'll go with a broad brush, the church at large, are we guilty of similar sins? Maybe we're, we're following, but we're following not too close. That because of our name Christian, because of our confidence in the promise of God that we're beginning to take into glory, that we don't take seriously all the commands of the Lord. Certainly a very real danger for us. Otherwise, why would we have all these warnings that are given to us? 
unless we think that this is just Old Testament stuff, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us of it in Hebrews 3 and 4. We're continually reminded of this, the cost of disobedience. You know, at times we're loath to speak about works because we don't want to in the danger of people believing that salvation, justification comes through works. And I think we do a disservice to ourselves and to the glory of the Lord. Works are important. They can't begin and they don't count till you're in Christ. But Ephesians 2.10 is still in the Bible. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we might walk amongst them. We know that at the judgment seat of Christ, we're, we're, our works are going to be judged. Paul says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade all men. You know, we spoke this morning in, in 1 Corinthians 11 about the glory of God and, and mentioned in passing the, the Lord's Supper, and we spoke about it a little bit tonight. The Corinthians, the Corinthians had overconfidence, uh, and what it resulted in them through their pride was a, a very fleshly spirituality, which wasn't very honoring to the Lord in spite of all the gift that they had. And it led them to licentious behavior which at times caused other people to blaspheme the name of the Lord. You know, we often talk about, I'm going to die right on time. I'm not going to die a moment early. The Lord's got a time set. But if I read 1 Corinthians 11 correctly, he talks about some of these who took at, at the table of the Lord un, in an unworthy manner. For that reason, some of you are sick and some sleep. We take the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 seriously. We ought to take this one seriously as well. As I mentioned this morning, I don't think this is speaking about unbelievers. An unbeliever can't get any more lost than he's already lost. He's not the one in danger at the Lord's table. We certainly want to caution them not to take it, but I think the warning and the danger here is for Christians who hold in light regard the glory of the Lord. Now, you'd say they were extreme gluttony and drunkenness and not sharing. But it's still painting a picture of a heart that's not fully in tune with the Lord. You know, we talked this morning about uh, the passage in Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. His glory has shown upon us. You're a children of God, right? If you're not sure, see me after the meeting. We'll see if that can't be resolved. Jesus said, Father, the glory you gave me, I have given to them. It's up to us to share that glory. Paul writing to, again, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And he's speaking in this passage about the glory which Moses had and how it faded away. Moses would go and be with the Lord. 
and then he'd come back and the glory would slowly fade away as he's separated from God. He spoke in that passage about the glory of the tablets, the covenant, the law, and then it also would fade away. He said, but if there's glory there in the law which brings death, how much more glory in that which brings life? And we've been given the spirit of the living God to dwell within us. We've been given glory from God. So we don't have a glory that fades away like it did with Moses. Now, he had to veil his glory so the people wouldn't see it and, and fade away. Theologians say it's because of his pride. Well, I don't know. We're told Moses was the most humble man on earth. I don't know, but his glory faded. He had to cover it with a veil, though, because people could see it. I have to ask myself, can people see my glory that the, that the Lord has given me? Not all the time. If we despise this which has been given to us, do we expect that the Lord is not going to deal with us? We talked about it in 1 Corinthians 11. If we're doing something outwardly that causes others to blaspheme the name of the Lord, well, we can expect his hand will be upon us. You know, but my, last time I checked, Hebrews 12 is still there. He chastises his children. He, he scourges every son whom he receives. What about the unrighteous, those who reject God? Romans 1, verse 18, starting from there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. He's going to say twice here in, in, in the first chapter and again in the second chapter, all men are without excuse. 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give. Um, for even though they knew God and did not honor him or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to become to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, that is the created thing, rather than the creator himself, who is blessed forever. Amen. In the next couple of verses, it talks about a curse that's pronounced about a country like ours that denies God. It's homosexuality. Nobody likes to talk about that. We try to act like it's no big deal. Well, that's a curse from God. Can't deny that. It's in Scripture. Well, I guess you can deny it if you want to be dishonest. What we have done in our society with the intellectuals, they have elevated themselves to the position where their wisdom is supreme. And when that happens, only evil is possible. What did Jeremiah say? The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful, beyond all repair. Who can know it, depending on the translation? But the evidence is clear. All that can come out of the human heart is evil. You know, Jeremiah um, warns that we should never take glory in our might, in our wisdom, or in our wealth. He's, he who is wise in his own eyes is foolish. 
And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parent, and without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Because the God of this world has blinded them. For all those who refuse God. They can't blind those who search for God. But he certainly does those who don't look for God. And where do we end up? We end up with uh, what Isaiah said in Isaiah 5. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Is that not what we see in our nation? Is that not what is transpiring throughout the world today? You know, Isaiah 59 talks about separation from God, the wicked. There's a confession and there's lack of uh, justice, but it ends up in judgment from God. The Lord looks and he says in in Isaiah 59, 16, and he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. The answer to the blindness of mankind is found in the next verse, verse 20. A, A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who will turn from transgression. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offsprings, offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. I don't have time to go to Ezekiel 33 or Ezekiel 3. He points him as a watchman. The Lord makes it clear. If we set a watchman and he doesn't warn, I will hold them accountable. If you warn them and they, they're disobedient, their blood's on their own head. But if you don't warn them, I'll hold you accountable. Now, we know everybody has to make their own decision, but there's a message there that we're accountable. Are we reaching out to the lost? Are, are we provoking one another unto good works? For he tells us, Ezekiel, in, in the, the, the 33rd chapter, I am setting you as a watchman on the wall. And why? He says, because I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why will you die? Turn from your wicked ways and live. That's the heart of God. Uh, Mark 9, Jesus talks about whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone hung about his neck and he'd been cast into the sea. Because what's going to happen? There'll be some cast into unquenchable fire where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Repeats it three times and says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt's a preservative. 
Our works are going to be tested by fire. And we're going to dwell forever in the presence of the glory of God. But those who aren't going to dwell in the presence of the glory of God, they're going to be salted with fire forever, given a body fit for the lake of fire. The question is, do we care? Um, we need polemics. Miles uh, Stanford wrote many polemics, typically against individuals. A good man of God, he's gone home to be with the Lord. Our brother Dave Hunt wrote polemics against typically groups or movements. He's gone home to be with the Lord. Leonard Ravenhill wrote polemics against the sleeping church. Now, we paint, he even admits, I'm painting with a broad brush here, he says, but the church as we know it today seems a million miles from the New Testament church. That may be a great generalization, but I'll stand on it. There is a gulf between our average Christianity and the church of the New Testament that makes the Grand Canyon look like a cavity in someone's tooth. What is missing from our churches? To use an Old Testament term, it is the burden of the Lord. One of the tragedies of the hour is that the voice of the prophet is no longer heard in the land. Where is lamenting for the lost? Don't hear too much of that. He continues, Isaiah was a man heavily burdened for his people and their sin. So was Jeremiah. His concern for the people caused him to weep day and night. The last revival, he says, mentioned in the Old Testament is found in the book of Joel. He proclaimed a solemn fast and said, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Ravenhill asks a really tough question. Well, who weeps anymore? And George Whitfield did. Back in the 18th century, he was severely castigated back then. There was no tears from the pulpit. And he openly wept. And he replied in print, said, you blame me for weeping, but how can I help it when you will not weep for yourselves? Though you're immortal souls on the verge of destruction. The sickness of the church, he said, I believe is twofold. First, we have taught people to witness and work, but not to worship. Christians will not take the time before God to see him in glory. I'm convicted. I go preaching the gospel. I shall weep for the lost. I don't see much weeping anywhere I go. With all my friends that preach the gospel, we preach it. I got to confess. Sometimes we look at those who reject it and say, that's their tough luck. I don't always have the heart of Christ. And that's an inhibition to preaching the gospel. Maybe I weep more over my inability to weep than weeping with a broken heart. I made a degree with everything that Alistair Begg says, but he once said, can you preach the gospel without weeping? He said, that's, a, that's some negative thing. I'm well-versed at it. 
Raymond Old said he knows preachers who think nothing of taking three days for elk or duck hunting, but they won't get on their knees and pray for the souls of human beings and seek the glory of God. Just you know, those deacons who, who begin to fidget if a Sunday service runs five minutes overtime because they want to get home to watch the bucks play the goats. How do they think they'll stand it in eternity? I finish with it. You said the second cause of the church's sickness is that the prayer meeting has become almost obsolete. Well, that's certainly more true now than when Raymond Hill said it, maybe 30 years ago. Most churches, I don't think you have prayer meetings anymore. We're out of the ordinary. I was reading a piece by George Verwer, and he quoted Samuel Chadwick, who said, Satan's greatest aim is to destroy our prayer lives. Satan is not afraid of prayerless study, prayerless work, or prayerless religion. But people tremble when people pray. We ask people to join in in this evangelism um, outreach. We desperately need people who will commit to praying for the evangelism to be effective because we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God, before, because we come before Him with broken hearts, praying for the lost. And if we can't have a broken heart, just praying that God would break our heart. We, we don't have to do this. But there is a price. We're going to face some of these people in eternity. They're going to say, why didn't you warn me? That's my biggest fear. It's not all the lives I had a hand in ending. It's those who say, Spear, how come you never warned me? It's a terrifying thought. People are going to say, I didn't need to be a Christian to live as wickedly as you. You know, we're out of time. I would spend some time talking about all the joys we're looking forward to. In Isaiah 66, the Lord talks about that there are going to be saints that they will then go out forth and look on the corpses of the men who are, have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. That's coming to the lost. You know, we rest on Psalm 1611. You will show me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what we're looking forward to. And praise God, hallelujah, amen, let it be so. But I'm going to have to pass by the great white throne judgment, not being there to be judged, but perhaps seeing those who I knew that I didn't reach get thrown into the lake of fire. We could talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We could talk about the new heaven and new the earth in Revelation 21 or the river of life that comes from the throne of God in Revelation 22. Those are glorious things for us that the people who end up in the lake of fire will never experience. And will that come about because we would not go out and preach to the lost? Because we would not humble ourselves? Because we would not pray? Oh, we've got too many things to do. Too busy. Again, the last time I checked, Revelation chapter 20 is still there, the great white throne judgment, and all these people are going to be cast into the lake of fire. What are we going to do about it? We want revival here? What's it take? It would seem that 
reaching the lost really begins with exhortation of the redeemed. Like I told you, I look in the mirror. This is me. I'm preaching to me. Now, if the shoe fits, wear it. We know the Lord wants to save souls. And praise God, he is saving souls. Like I said, we saw another two saved last night at the pier. We're seeing some minor little gleaning around the edges. He said, how often are we praying for our brothers and sisters down the street, across town? Yeah, we're divided by some differences in the way we gather to worship. The same problem that keeps a lost sinner from coming to Christ keeps us from being an effective warrior for Christ. It's pride. We have to swallow our pride and quit holding on to our plan for our life and give glory to God and be obedient. I haven't arrived at that. I told you, I'm freely confessing. I struggle with that. I'll finish with a, a little passage out of 2 Thessalonians. Or, it's still the same thing. It's a judgment of God. But there's a choice here. 2 Thessalonians in the first chapter. Let's start with verse 7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now that could be the end for them. Or, as Paul continues on, praying for the Thessalonians here, what is the heart? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Dovetail this together with what our brother Al shared last week. You know, this, this message really began about eight, nine weeks ago. And the Spirit is talking to us. He said, I'm under deep conviction. Are we going to win souls or aren't we? Here's the task before us and the promise of God. If some will pray, that's furrowing the ground making the hearts ready for the seed. Some will plant, some will water, and some will reap. And if we will follow God's plan, he shall give the increase to the glory of God and of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we, we come before you and confess that we are weak and selfish. Yet there's a spark of love within us. We recognize how much has been given to us. We desire to know your ways that we might know you. That we might catch a glimpse of your glory. That it would ignite a fire in our heart. Give us a love for the lost. Help us, Father, to bear your word in our heart. The Spirit can draw it out at the appropriate moment to reach lost souls. We look upon your son who paid for the souls of every man, woman, and child on this earth. And we sit back 
in comfort waiting for the rapture. Again, as your servant Ravenhill said, there's a judgment coming. The church doesn't care and the world doesn't know. Father, help us to be good servants, to show our love for you, shine us up that we might reflect your glory, that the lost might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, help us that from this day forth, we can say there's nobody to whom we did not give the gospel when we had the opportunity and give us open doors. Give us clear vision that we see those open doors and then boldness to go through them. Father, I pray that you would raise up amongst us here saints who would fulfill every task that you've given to us as individuals so that as a corporate body we can be productive. Again, all for your glory and for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.